0: Knowing that you guys are interested in escapes, I thought I'd bring to your attention an incredibly heroic story of John Martin.
1: And welcome to For You, The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, prisoner war escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony.
2: And today we actually have a guest with us, who is John West, who's here to talk to us about driver John William Martin, DCM. John, pleasure to meet you. Very interested to know why you have such an interest in this particular man. Tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us why this particular story has really really struck you.
0: Well, I've been following uh, your podcast, for which many congratulations over the years. Thank you. Thank you very much. And John Martin was a driver in my dad's Royal Artillery Regiment. And I'm no historian. I'm a doctor by background, a cardiologist. But my father's war was something that was kept really silent from us as a family. We knew he'd been a POW. We knew he'd been in the artillery. We knew he'd been in the Dunkirk rearguard. But that was as far as it went and as children you don't question any further when i got a little bit older i used to ask my dad you know what rank did you get to dad you know because i was interested in military things and he would just simply answer with a straight answer i was a staff sergeant oh okay and that was as far as it would ever go he was a consultant psychiatrist as far as my, i was concerned my dad was a was a psychiatrist my mum was a psychiatrist i was a group brought up in a medical family and i became a doctor myself so i had a very comfortable baby boomer type existence and unaware of the trauma, really, my dad must have gone through. When my dad retired and I was a junior hospital doctor, well, I said to him, Dad, you've got your lump sum now. You've retired. You can travel the world. Where would you like to go? Thinking that we might be planning an exotic holiday together to, I don't know, China, India, somewhere exciting. And his answer was, "I'd quite like to go back to Flanders." And I didn't know what Flanders meant. I didn't even know what the term Flanders meant. But I said, "Well, where, where you know, where exactly is that?" And he says, oh, "Belgium." Well, you, you don't want to spend your retirement lifetime holiday in Belgium. And so you could see he was incredibly deflated at that point. And he and I never, father and son, never actually did that trip. And then he got ill and had to have chemotherapy. After he died. I suddenly thought, oh, that was a shame. We missed out on that trip. And I could have actually found out a little bit more about his wartime. I'm sure he probably would have opened up at that point and told me all about it. So I got hold of his military records, found out which artillery regiment he was actually in. It was the 140 Regiment, 5th London Field Regiment of the Royal Artillery. Managed to get hold of his military records, managed to look up the regiment and suddenly found, my goodness me, this is an extraordinary story. Apart from anything else, the regiment, his battery of the regiment, 367 battery, were involved in the desperate rearguard fighting at Cassell. And that in itself is a fantastically heroic story. And so I, as a result of research, set up a website. And if you search 140 Field Regiment Royal Artillery on Google, you should find my website. And through that website, which has got a contact page... I've had numerous relatives of the regiment, descendants of the regiment coming through to me. I've learned so much. I've expanded the website to incorporate all the new information. And actually, the, the research has even led me to write a, a book, which is really how my dad must have felt at the time. It's less of a, a military account and more of an account of how it must have been to be a conscript in the BEF in 1940 and the subsequent prisoner of war working down a coal mine in Silesia. And the book is called The Psychiatrist by yours truly so that's that's how the story came about and knowing that you guys are interested in escapes I thought I'd bring to your attention an incredibly heroic story of John Martin his bravery was awarded with a DCM now I'm not military but I understand a distinguished conduct medal that's correct yeah is secondary only to the Victoria Cross in terms of its ranking.
2: Did your father know John Martin? Then if He would assume,
0: certainly have known him because the 367 battery was 400 men. My, my father was a lance bombardier at this time, and so, yes, I'm certain he would have known him. John Martin was a driver. He grew up on a farm, and, of course, this, we're talking about 1939. Very few of these young conscripts knew how to drive, so the ones who could drive, including Martin were very often directed towards driving the officers in their Humber snipe staff cars or driving the, the gun tractors. So he became Driver Martin.
1: So tell us a bit more about Driver Martin. Who was he? Where was he from? What did he do? How did he end up in the Royal Artillery? Tell us a bit more about him.
0: Uh, it, it's a little bit of a mystery i've been unable to track martin's immediate family and i've been unable to make any contact with people who knew the family in the very small little village of Avedon gifford in devon which is where he grew up i know that he worked on a, as he lived with his father and mother on staunton farm but he later worked as a butcher in the village how he managed to join a london-based territorial army regiment i don't know but that's that's martin the next time i come across him is when he becomes the driver to major edward milton now milton is a bit of a tragic character he was a artillery officer in world war 1 okay. and like many of the officers in this regiment the 140 regiment they were all world war 1 veterans and at the age of roughly 45, they were called up again in order to go through the whole process that they survived through World War I in order to join the BEF and try and form a viable artillery unit.
1: Presumably because they had the experience. I yes. mean, you, you don't just throw green people into the front line, particularly if you're forming an expeditionary force. So presumably because they had that four years of experience, admitted at a much younger and more junior level, that is why they were brought back in.
0: Yes, that's right. So Edward Milton was a schoolteacher, married with a daughter, and he taught at a school in Essex, and driver Martin became his driver. So that was the role that Martin played within the regiment.
1: So how did Martin and Milton and the rest of the regiment end up in France?
0: So they crossed over from Southampton to Lavre in around about April, and then spent the Phoney War in training. And a lot of their training took place in the old battlefields of the Somme. Okay. And a lot of these officers, World War I veterans, were quite keen to show the men where their gun batteries had been in the Somme battles. They could actually see the gun pits where their guns had been. In, in terms of the training, they used to explain to the men exactly what the tactics were during World War One. And of course, you've got to remember that the Imperial Army of 1918 was absolutely unbeatable at that point, because they had perfected artillery techniques, they'd managed to learn the the coordination between the Air Force, the Army, the Tank Corps and the Artillery. They were using sounding to, in order to range the guns was a fantastic unbeatable force the, the the huge tragedy of course of world war ii is that knowledge got transferred i think to the german army who then used it and called it Blitzrieg, whereas the british army seemed to have forgotten all of this and for example they'd lost the they'd lost the lesson of the importance of coordination of forces and air air support so but anyway that they, they, they spent some happy months playing football and training and uh, digging trenches and learning their to use their equipment but then the 10th of may that day when churchill became prime minister and the germans invaded the low countries the regiment moved up um according to plan d towards the river dial to take an advanced position and in fact the urban myth which may be true is that the 140 regiment were the first artillery battery to fire a shot in anger at the incoming germans so they were heavily involved in the dial fighting but like the rest of the bef had to withdraw as the germans advanced through the ardennes and the scythe-like movement it became clear that the british army was in danger there were two batteries in 140 regiment 366 battery and 367 battery 367 battery included the hq on the and their staff officers once they got back to the belgian border a decision was made to separate the two batteries. So 366 Battery went to the Messine Ridge mm-hmm. and started fighting over the same old ground of World War I, defending themselves against the advancing Germans. But the, most of 366 Battery managed successfully to escape through Dunkirk. 367 Battery and the HQ staff were sent to Cassell, and they, where they joined 145 Brigade commanded by the Honorary Nigel Fitzroy Somerset from the Gloucester Regiment.
2: That's a strong name. Mm. That is a strong <laughs> That's name, a very isn't good it? name. You can imagine him being a commander. Mm-hmm.
0: Somerset uh, is a, a mini-hero of mine because I think he is so unsung. I've read his war diaries and his personal diaries of both his command in Cassel and Heisebrook and his subsequent captivity. And what a man. A man I think you two guys need to get to know <laughs> because he was the SBO, the Senior British Officer at Offlag 9. Okay, And masterminded quite a few of the escape attempts there. All right. Well, amongst his activities at Offlag 9 was he was uh, asked to represent the the British army at the Katyn massacre, which the Germans had uncovered. But very wisely, Somerset decided not to get involved because it was obvious that this was a propaganda exercise. And so he held back um, and was finally liberated by the Allies in 1945. And his heroism in holding Cassell right up until the night of the 29th of May was, in some historians' view, one of the most important factors in holding back the advance of the panzers that would have cut off the escape route as the BEF were heading towards the beaches and is a very unsung story and something I think that historically needs to be probably put right it was as important, if not more important, than the very heroic siege at Calais. And in Somerset's forwards to various uh, books that he's written and in his own diaries, he's written that no evacuation would have taken place at all at Dunkirk if it hadn't been for the redoubt at Cassel and Hayserbrook, in which I'm very proud to say my father's regiment was very instrumental. They had 18-pounder guns, ranged from the top of the the high ground at Cassell. And at the end of the battle, there were probably 100 destroyed panzer tanks. The Germans had been significantly held up. And uh, in fact, the garrison at Cassell was never defeated. They received orders delivered by a dispatch rider to retreat and head to Cassell, every man for himself. They spiked the guns. And in the cover of darkness of the 29th and 30th of May, they attempted on foot to reach Dunkirk, but apart from a tiny handful of people who managed to successfully escape, most encountered German forces around the towns of Watu in Belgium and Vinazili in France, and were, sadly, many were killed because the Germans at this stage were actively committing war crimes. Wormhout was only about five miles to the north. Les Paradis was only about 15 miles to the south. There was a significant amount of shooting of surrendering prisoners, including Ronald Cartland MP, who was in the Worcester Yeomanry anti-tank artillery.
1: OK, I have to say he's not a name I've come across too often. Do you want to touch a little bit more on who Ronald Cartland was?
0: You'll all know the Cartland family, but the famous Barbara Cartland, the novelist, actually wrote an incredibly touching book called My Brother Ronald. And a bit like Somerset, Ronald Cartland's story is really very heroic He was a conservative MP for a working class seat in Birmingham. He was undoubtedly homosexual. And that meant, of course, he was, in those days, he was under threat of, if he ever got found out, of imprisonment and hard labour. But he diverted all his energy. He was very religious. He diverted diverted his energy to support for the working class, in effect, as a conservative MP. It was quite extraordinary. And he was very much to the left of the party. He was very much uh, in the tradition of the maverick MPs and he was part of the anti-appeasement movement and made a very, very strong speech in the House of Commons when Neville Chamberlain attempted to prorogue Parliament for several months during the build-up to World War II, the outbreak of World War II. Uh, Chamberlain actually attempted to prorogue Parliament, and Cartland was one of the brave conservatives who defied the whip and spoke out about it and, and cor- correctly predicted the, the bloodshed that was going to come. He was in the Territorial Army in the anti-tank artillery and he was also part of 145 brigade at Cassell and his two-pounder anti-tank guns were very effective weapons in their time at destroying these panzer tanks and he along with a, a cohort of 140 men was hiding in a ditch he'd ordered the men to surrender A tank drew up to his ditch and the machine gun was trained upon them even though they were surrendering and Ronald Cartland and his second in command hutton squires were both killed and his death was a terrible tragedy in terms of the loss his younger brother who was a professional soldier had also been killed during the the dunkirk evacuation and and the two of them are are buried both in belgium
2: so that takes us then to the fall of Cassell then so is that when your father and John Martin were captured and taken prisoner?
0: Yes, my father actually got made quite good progress in in his breakout towards Dunkirk and wasn't actually captured until the 31st of May. So he managed to hack across country, got across the border, fortifications and so on, and was in Belgium, somewhere near Watu. There's a family story that my father dropped a grenade into a tank, but there were no officers present, so his bravery was, was never recognised. The, the problem that the escapees were having was that they kept encountering tanks, and as the mist lifted and as the dawn broke, most of the men were lying exposed in relatively shallow ditches in the flat, Flanders the landscape. They had nowhere to hide. And so my father was part of that group, and thankfully he wasn't shot. He was rounded up. Now Gunnar Martin was the driver to Edward Milton. The two of them, Milton and Martin, and two or three other of their little group, because they were all escaping in small groups, every man for themselves, were hiding out in a farmhouse when the Germans surrounded the farmhouse. And I suspect the farmhouse was probably only three or four miles out of Cassel, So they hadn't made much progress. It was pitch dark. Edward Milton said, we're going to have to surrender, firing at us. We've got only small arms. There's nothing we can do. He ordered his men to surrender. And like many of the men on that day, sadly, Edward Milton was shot and fatally injured. He is now buried in Commonwealth War Grave at St. Omer. Martin was uninjured and picked up and taken for assembly with most of the POWs, including my own father, to the town square in Watu. And then the men were then kept there under machine gun guard, unaware of what was going to happen next, because the rumours about the massacres that had taken place at Wormhout were widespread. They'd seen the behaviour of some of these panzer tank commanders who'd been firing at them. They weren't quite sure what was going to happen, but they were kept there, assembled there, and then without water or food, they were then, the officers were piled into trucks and driven off towards Cambrai, into captivity, the enrolled men below the rank of sergeant, were then forced to march on a circular march, literally hundreds of kilometres through all the rural villages in France and paraded by the Germans as trophies, in effect. And there was a war crime investigation about the treatment of the POWs at Cassel, And, of course, one of the main witnesses was Gunnar Martin. But, unfortunately, that war trial never was completed
1: Haven't been captured and the Germans have taken them, including Gunnar Martin, on this march. What happened to Martin next?
0: He participated in the march. His route was through Doulon and then to Cambrai. And at Cambrai, he was put on a railway train. Okay. And that was his first escape. Right. Um, As the train approached the Belgian border at Mm Hurson, he managed to jump off the train discarded his military uniform, managed to find some civilian clothes from somewhere, which of course is dangerous. Mm. But he kept his paybook, luckily, for mm. him. And he was captured two days later on the run in f- civilian clothing. He was fortunately captured by the French authorities, apparently, okay. and put, put in a prison camp.
1: Do, do you know where he went during these two days?
0: No, he was just cross-country, somewhere, okay. somewhere in hacking his way across. That's it.
1: <laughs> Presumably okay. trying to get... To the coast,
2: or try and get as part of the advance, because we're still early June 1940 here. Aren't That's we? right.
0: Yes, yeah. fr- so he uh, may so even been trying to get to Dunkirk.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: So the, his paybook saved his life. Mm-hmm. He was handed over to the German authorities at some point here, but three weeks later. He managed to escape again.
2: So he's fairly dedicated to the cause of getting away. It's fairly clear from the outset that he's not wanting to take the prisoner alive. No, that's right. He
0: wasn't one to give up. That's, That's for sure. So he escaped a second time and managed to get near to Eponay. So he's now, for some reason, he's actually feeding himself further to the south. I'm not sure where he had in mind he should escape to, and I'm not sure whether he knew clearly which way the wall was going. But anyway, he ended up in the town of Epinay. So he was captured again, this time by the Germans, and and taken to a prison camp. But he managed to escape again. I don't know the circumstances. says in his report, he jumped over a wall, swam across the River Marne at some point in this escape, and fought as well. I say fought. He managed to trudge cross-country on foot through the demarcation line where Vichy, France was. Mm, Well done. And then managed to do the 900-kilometre journey cross-country to Marseille, living off the land, apparently, stealing fruit from vegetable stalls, stealing from farms, and got to Marseille. This probably would have been around about July, late July 1940. So meanwhile, back in Britain, the Battle of Britain was about to start. France had surrendered. The Vichy government was getting established. But in Marseille, he was caught by the Vichy authorities and sent to a prison camp, in, I think Fort Saint-Jean where he encountered a British officer, Major Potts, and under Major Potts' tutelage, he escaped after two or three weeks in captivity and managed to find his way to the harbour where he hid underneath a lifeboat cover on a French boat bound for Iran. He smuggled his way to Iran, arrived in Iran, which, of course, was also Vichy-controlled and had only recently had the French fleet destroyed by the British fleet. So feelings were running very high in Oran. And so he got off the boat and almost immediately was arrested by the French authorities and was sent to a prison camp, which he describes as the worst experience of all of these prison camps that he attended. The conditions were very harsh, very brutal. It was entirely French-controlled. But luckily for him, he managed to escape with a private Lindsay from the Black Watch.
1: So we're on to escape five.
0: Yes, this is, I think, escape five. If we're keeping count here, I think this is escape number five. So the two of them, Lindsay and Martin, managed to to smuggle themselves onto another boat bound for Casablanca in Morocco, through the Straits of Gibraltar into Morocco. And Casablanca, for the first time, he encountered friendly forces, and he found his way to the American Embassy, where the ambassador treated them both very well, found him a place on a Portuguese sugar boat that then transported
2: him back to the Straits of Gibraltar, to Gibraltar,
0: where in December
2: 1940, he arrived. You say you received help from the American Embassy. Now, we've come across a number of other escapees who also made, when they got to relatively safe, in inverted commas, countries, made to the American Embassy for help. Because, of course, at this time, America's not in the war. I think it's safe to say there's been a mixture of responses that we've seen towards escaping prison particularly in some cases in France. But you say he was received well and they were very helpful. So is there any more details on what they managed to do for him in order to help?
0: The story he tells is the ambassador actually got him a place on a boat. So organized the actual and then, and the safe transfer to the harbor to board the boat. So he didn't have to smuggle himself on board. He was escorted
2: on board. That's particularly helpful when it mm. comes to getting through security at port, as we've well seen.
1: So Knowing someone on the inside has made a huge amount of difference, often in rail yards and that sort of thing. But also interesting, as you say, many American embassies were reluctant to get too involved in this sort of thing. We've seen one or two where they've pointed them in the right direction but not actually made direct interventions themselves. So it's interesting to see that contrast Embry being an example where he went to the American embassy in Paris, I think it was. And he was trying to pretend he was American, wasn't he, in order to try and get (laughs) the secretary. Putting on a dreadful cowboy accent to try and get past And By all accounts, the secretary burst out laughing and told him to stop. The contrast here with some of the other examples we've seen is fascinating to see. But, I mean, it's not a criticism of the embassies themselves. A neutral country at this stage and not necessarily wanting to get too involved in the politics behind it. But... There is definitely a contrast here with the ambassador going so far as to escort him onto a ship here. We've not come across that before.
0: So arriving in Gibraltar and boarded a British frigate. So safe at last. And a message sent back to the UK to say that one straggler from 367 Battery had managed to escape captivity. The one and only escapee from that particular battery.
1: So he's the only one from his battery that made it out and back?
0: By escaping, yes.
1: Well done. Good on him.
0: So Martin, the most determined man, it appears, gets home and then the first thing he does is report back to the barracks in Woolwich, which is where 367 Battery was based.
2: Was he a fairly young man? I mean, I appreciate the war is still in its junior years as well, yeah. and there's obviously a long way to go. But, of course, they weren't to know there was a long way to go at this point. So, you know, was he early 20s or Yes, late he was 20. He was 20 years yeah. old, yes. and he's done five escapes yes. and managed to get home. Yes. What a legend. Great man. Yes. Great man.
0: Yeah. But he reported for duty. Now, of course, my father's artillery regiment had been decimated by Cassell and it wasn't anymore based at Woolwich. So they sent him from Woolwich to Bournemouth, which is where he was reunited with his commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Graham Brooks, who wrote a fantastic out of print book, but it's still available at second hand bookstores called Grand Party by Graham Brooks which is a fabulous account of the experience of BEF fighting. And it also mentions the the Martin escape. But, of course, it was written during wartime censorship, this book, and so everything is censored, so the names are, are dropped. It was Brooks who recommended him for a DCM, and, I, and the, the paperwork is in all the National Archives which accounts of, the, of this escape. I would be grateful if the facts could be laid before the CCRA with a view to his consideration whether or not some recognition could be awarded to Gunnar Martin, signed Lieutenant Colonel Graham Brooks. Now, this story, guys, is a bit bittersweet because we lose the trail like a lot of, a lot of your escapees. We lose the trail after, after that. We see the DCM Award in 1941 by His Majesty the King, George VI. But then the trail goes very cold until 1944, January 1944, when we pick up the war diaries of a Royal Engineer Regiment, where we find Martin has converted from an artilleryman to a sapper. It's the 50th mechanical equipment section, Royal Engineers, and reading these war diaries, you realise what a heroic outfit this was. It's a small regiment, uh, but they operated armoured bulldozers and diggers and tractors. And in January 1944, we find them in Finthorn in Murray, Scotland, where they are participating in Exercise Smash and Operation Grab, imaginatively named. And if you go to the beach there, you'll see all the remnants of the, the coastal defences that were there on the beach and they look stunningly like normandy oh really okay and here here we're involved with excavator and tractor training lectures about how to deal with barbed wire and mines and so on so it's obvious d-day was being planned out of sight well well away from the trouble
1: doesn't get much further <laughs> yes
0: in february we have exercise crown and exercise anchor and in march we have exercise leap year all of these are specific training exercises to how to mount assault on a beach from an amphibious landing under fire and you know the royal engineers who spearheaded this had actually one of the highest mortalities on d-day and then the pace hots up in that the platoon now moves in april 1944 to hampshire where they participate in exercise fabius in cowplain hampshire which is live firing exercises operating these armored bulldozers In May 1944, just a month before D-Day, we have the training that led up to Neptune, which was the assembly of the D-Day forces. And there's a mention in the War Diary that they hosted a visit by Eisenhower, which I think reflects their importance on the raids. And they were too busy to meet His Majesty the King because they were working day and night preparing. In June 1944, they moved to Gosport and then participated in Operation Overlord. 6th of June... They were right at the front of the onslaught onto Sword Beach and they were on Queen Sector, the Sword Beach, where on the first tide they got eight angle dozers, two 20-ton trailers, nine eight-ton trailers onto the beach. A second wave of the platoon came on the second tide and it says in the war diary here that four exits were opened under fire. And then it mentions the commanding officer, Captain Reese, was killed and one ordinary rank was missing, believed killed, and I believe that was Gunnar Martin. Sadly, after his bravery escaping from Cassell, he finally gets killed on D-Day under fire.
2: Was he ever found?
0: Well, he's buried in a Commonwealth war grave back at his home village at Aves and Gifford, and his grave, which I visited, is next to his parents' Who he predeceased sadly
2: yeah, we we sadly saw that recently with one where uh, the young man who managed to get all the way through the war and then was killed, I think four years after the war in a navigational accident at night flying into the side of a mountain, so and he predeceased his parents as well, so absolutely tragic. So that brings the end to driver Martin's story then with him being lost on d day.
0: That's right. That is the end of the the, the the Martin story, sadly. I've been to visit his grave and spoken to the church warden to tell the story. There is now Gunnar Martin's name has been engraved on the new D-Day memorial. I've yet to visit that. Yeah, it's yeah. very,
2: very new. Very impressive memorial, actually. Yeah.
0: And so that, guys, is the Gunnar
2: Martin DCM story. My word, that's really impressive. And you say this is covered on your website as well? Yes,
0: so if you Google 140 Regiment, as I said earlier, and type in the search box Martin, the Martin escape story should all
2: spring into view. And amongst, I guess, stories of many other people from the same regiment. I mean, how, how many of you managed to cover? Because this is obviously because of your father's link. This is obviously a hugely important thing to you. But this is a substantial website, is it, of many different stories of these people who served? Yes,
0: I mean, I, I'm no historian, but I think sometimes the key to getting into history is just specialize super specialize on one particular topic so i've simply spent a lot of time researching this one regiment my father's regiment and out of that i've built up this picture of these magnificent larger than life characters many escapers that i would hope you'll be able to perhaps broadcast in a later podcast my own father's story which he himself had an escape although it was only for a day and he managed to run away from the long march at Gleivich in Poland, but got rearrested. Unfortunately, he wasn't shot. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here to tell you this story. But yes, there's plenty of stories come out of this. And I hope that you've all enjoyed this.
2: Well, absolutely. No, uh, definitely. And, and you say, so your father's story is also covered in your book. And what was that book again?
0: I've told my father's story in the book called The Psychiatrist, because he was a psychiatrist. So my father's re- recovered from the war, came back weighing six and a half stone, having participated in the Long March, he spoke fluent German and in his final year in captivity, he was an inter- a camp interpreter in, a, in the work camp that he was assigned to, E-72, in uh, a town called Buten, which is now Polish Bitum, which was then a German border town, right on the border with Poland. Sadly for my dad, it was a very harshly run coal mine with a sadist for a, for a camp commandant who made all the men's life there very miserable. Committed several war crimes for which my dad was a, a witness. But my father, because he was fluent in German, was required immediately after the war, before VJ Day, in fact, had taken place, because there were 400,000 German POWs in captivity in the UK that all needed to be denazified and graded according to their risk for return. So my father was transferred to the RAOC, where he became the interpreter at Shady Lane POW camp. So he became a poacher turned gamekeeper. Very wow, much. Um, so, having had suffered all the traumas of captivity himself, he then had to translate and work out which of these germans were safe to return which required further education the education programs that they were performing at the time included putting them in cinemas and showing them holocaust films and then grading the emotional response that they were seeing so my father having suffered his own war then had to try and translate that into working out the german psyche really he was a fluent german speaker but never, ever used his skill, apart from one occasion when he and I, in the 1970s, happened to be in a hotel in the UK somewhere, and we were standing in a queue at reception, and everyone was getting a little bit bored because there was a German couple in front of us who were having a problem with their bill or something, a problem with their room. So my father stepped forward and then spoke fluent German, just came out of him. There was me, his teenage son, looking up in bewilderment, thinking where's this come from? I've never heard you speak German like this. And the German couple turned around to him and said, you speak perfect German. Where did you learn it? And my father said, well, I was a POW in your country.
2: Wow. And that's all covered in your, in your yes, book?
0: That's all covered in The Psychiatrist, yes.
2: And that's available online?
0: But yes, all, all good online
1: booksellers. You mentioned previously that your father was a psychiatrist. And Interesting that you said he was there to assess the psychological response to things like film of the Holocaust and that sort of thing. Was he already a qualified psychiatrist at this point, or is that what inspired him to do it? And part of the reason I'm thinking about this is because I'm kind of getting a lot of comparisons in my head to Gustav Gilbert, who was the psychiatrist who was assessing the Nazis at Nuremberg. Now, obviously, that's at a different level. He was assessing the likes of Goering and Hess and the really top Nazis you're talking about, relatively junior compared to them. But there seems to be a lot of parallels there, and I'm just interested to see whether it was something he was already involved in or if this was the inspiration that drove him towards this as his, as his career. No, he was, he'd,
0: he was conscripted straight from school into the army and so had to get his A-levels. This is where he met my mother, Kingston Polytechnic get himself into medical school and then once qualified as a doctor he he started training as a neurology on a neurology psychiatry rotation under the supervision of a very famous psychiatrist at the time William Sargent but he never talked about his war he never talked about what motivated him but w- the family story is that yes he became interested in the psychological aspects of trauma through his own life experience and yes he becomes a psychiatrist and upon that is what the book is is based
2: so john i mean i don't know what to say really i mean it's incredible incredible that you came across driver martin's story it's tragic that it ended the way that it did but in a way his report is very short and have really <laughs> brought it all to life so if it wasn't for the research you've done this is a story that would largely have gone unnoticed and i think it's incredible and i I imagine, therefore, that you're hopeful that we can find family relatives or anybody who knows other information as well or routes to people, indeed anybody from this particular unit you're interested in getting, getting hold of.
0: Yes, please make contact with me through the website. I'd love to hear from anyone who has any information about the fighting at Cassell and subsequent captivity.
2: Okay, and that website again, one last time?
0: Google 140 Regiment.
2: 140 regiment on Google or as if any of our listeners want to get hold of us we can obviously pass things on to John so I think all that's left to say is thank you John thank you for your time yes thank you so much and I really hope we managed to find some more information for you well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on Apple iTunes Google Podcast or indeed any of your favorite podcast platforms
1: or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching At F-Y-T-W-I-O.
2: Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.